The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox podcast. My name is Mike Rankin and I will be your host today. Joined as well by James Fox, our guest is Mr. Carlos Colazzo, national writer for Baseball America, does work for the MLB Draft. We had him on actually before, friend of the program. Carlos, thanks so much for jumping back on. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. It's uh, fun to be back. Hope you're doing well. A couple quick things to get us started here first, I guess. And it relates to the news that we got yesterday from the NCAA, and I I wanted to get your full scope of things because I need to understand the impact of the new NCAA eligibility relief that they Mm -hmm. put out. Players are in the spring sports are able to maintain their eligibility. So seniors get to return. Yeah. Now I'd like to get your opinion on how this impacts guys across the board, Mm -hmm. um, whether they're seniors, juniors, sophomores, who benefits the most. And I'd love your take overall on the recent agreement. Yeah, sure. I think there are a lot of kind of ramifications we could talk about with this, and we'll have to really see how it actually plays out to get a, a full perspective and an accurate perspective. But there's there's a lot of things you can kind of see happening with this. The first one is that obviously it's good for all these players who just lost this season to have the eligibility back. Um, it would have been terrible, for especially for these seniors, uh, to kind of just have your season taken from you. Obviously, a lot of people are dealing with things more important than baseball can, with all the coronavirus stuff. But the fact that the NCAA made this decision, I think, was a smart one. So seniors can come back. Uh, I don't I don't think they count against the uh, scholarship uh, limits. I think that's how they're uh, doing that at this point. But that's good for them. It's good for the juniors. Um, and it's also going to create a lot of uh, challenges, I would say, for college coaches and kind of trying to structure their rosters next fall. Obviously, the draft has a lot to do with this. The decision um, by MLB and the MLB Players Association or the agreement they came to in terms of giving MLB the power to uh, make the draft a minimum of five rounds. Uh, If it is a five-round draft, there are going to be a lot of players who coaches were expecting to leave uh, that are going to be back on campus. That creates a roster crunch with a lot of the incoming high school talent. Again, a lot of those high school players would have otherwise been drafted in a longer draft. They'll be on talent, uh, excuse me, they'll be on campus competing for at-bats for playing time. A lot of these juniors in that second and third tier range will be back on campus competing for at-bats and playing time. And now you've got the seniors who are who are going to be back and 
it's going to be interesting to see how all of these teams um, provide opportunities in terms of playing time and scholarship money. Uh, because I imagine there are going to be a lot of programs who are not going to want to fund the additional scholarships uh, that you're going to be able to after this NCAA uh, decision to to allow everyone's eligibility back. I mean, with, with the money situation, I know the NCAA handed out significantly less money uh, to all these schools. Uh, there are different programs that have different financial situations. Obviously, the Vanderbilts of the world will probably be fine. Uh, but some of these teams that, that don't have as much money as other clubs are going to have to make some tough decisions even still. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how all of that kind of uh, bears out. Yeah, so Carlos, I mean, it was, I guess, last week when some of the some of the news started to sprinkle out about the agreement between the players and the owners. You know, and right away it was like, oh, it's going to be like a five-round draft. And that mm-hmm. was a little bit misreported, it sounds like. It sounds like, you know, they can take it down to five. Mm-hmm. We've... You know, we've talked to people here who ultimately think that it's probably going to end up being 10, which is mm-hmm. which is still a significant change, obviously. But I guess, have you have you heard similar possibly? And obviously nobody really knows, mm-hmm. but I think people in scouting departments are bracing for 10 and they're they're really hoping for 10 instead of five. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit that on the head. I think that's a great call by you. There are a lot of people who are kind of operating under the assumption that it is going to be five. Um, it could vo- it could very well be five, but as it stands right now, the draft isn't five rounds. Like you said, the minimum is just five rounds. Everyone that I've talked to, and that's mostly on the scouting and the uh, the advisor side, they would prefer it to be 10 rounds. And both of those sides, obviously, there are a lot of reasons why they would like it to be 10 rounds. I think at this point, if you do have a 10-round draft, um, I think that's a pretty good outcome, all things considered. Uh, just when you talk about the number of players, I mean, obviously it's twice as many players or a little less than twice as many if you figure in the comp rounds. But it's a lot of players that you could get into pro ball. It would alleviate a lot of the issues that are going to pop up on college campuses. And I think also there are a lot of players who are ready for pro ball. These teams know all these players. And while it would be great to watch them for three more months, all of these teams have done their homework. They know the players. Every single player is going to have a little bit more risk associated with them because of the circumstances that teams are operating under, but they are they are capable of drafting 10 rounds right now. And I think it gives a lot of opportunities for area scouts to maybe make more of a dent than they would in previous years because there are going to be some guys who, if you have good history on, if you have good relationship with the player, you're, you're going to be operating at a little bit of an advantage. So hopefully we can see 10 rounds. It'll be more fun to cover a draft with 10 rounds than five rounds. But if it is five rounds, the 2021 class is going to be insane. Let me follow up with that real quick. What do you envision happening considering, yeah, we're cutting this draft down to 10 rounds next year? And you mentioned just the jumbled up bunch of players that Mm -hmm. might mix into that next year's class. Like, how is this going to work? Yeah, so next year, I think the minimum is 20 rounds. Um, So that'll be a little bit better. And in general, I think I've always operated under the assumption that the draft is too long right now. I mean, it's 40 rounds. Most teams do not sign 40 players every year. It's more like 25 to 30 and a little more. So I think the draft in general should probably be 25 rounds. But I think this aligns pretty much exactly with what MLB is trying to do as far as contracting the minor leagues, uh, restructuring the minor leagues. Um, And with a shorter draft, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious to everyone who is paying attention inside the game that this is just signaling that minor league contraction. So I think MLB is basically doing everything they want to do to sort of facilitate that structure. Um, But I do think, again, let's say we do have a five-round draft. Uh, 
Next year's draft class would be insanely deep. This is already a very deep draft class in general if we still had 40 rounds. Um, so there would be there would be some ripple effects in terms of talent falling over into next year's draft and just kind of sorting that self that out would be a little bit difficult. But I think once we get to, to 20 rounds, it'd be pretty straightforward. I think at the moment, teams play a lot of um, financial games in terms of drafting players who maybe aren't the best talent in the top 10 rounds just so they can move money back um, to the after 10 round guys. It makes sense why they do that. I understand why they do. It's the smart thing to do. Um, but I, I think I would rather have a draft structure where you, you don't play as many of those, those games and you just line the talent up and you take the players. But um, yeah, I, th- I think 20 would be fine to be honest with you. I know there are a lot of various scouts who, who would disagree with me there. Um, but at some point, whatever the cutoff is, is arbitrary. And if it fits with the talent and the structure of the game that we're going to be uh, moving towards, I think it, it makes sense. Yeah, so, if, I mean, for a team like the White Sox, like, using last year's bonus pools, like, in a five-round draft, they'd still have, like, $7.8 million to spend somewhere in that range. And then it's, like, you know, like, almost $9 million if it goes to 10 rounds. So I agree with you, like, the you know, the biggest part of doing this here was to like ultimately shorten the draft in the long run. Like there's Mm -hmm. obviously like greater, greater purposes here, Mm -hmm. which, which are coming into play. Um, So I guess with the seniors, like you've heard people and obviously like the agreement that the NCAA made changes this a little bit, but you heard people talk about how this like really affects seniors, Mm -hmm. like this, the senior kids that want to play pro ball. I, I don't really think it does affect them. And maybe you can, you can clarify. I feel like a lot of those guys are still, you know, it's like some of those guys were getting less than $20,000 anyway. So Mm -hmm. I was just wondering if that would just be more of like similar to like the NFL draft for like undrafted guys. Are you going to go like where it's familiar to you or maybe where you think you could develop quicker? Like, or it's like, you know, trying to get these seniors to sign after the draft. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. I mean, Jake Mangum last year, I think he was the first senior selected and he was taken in the fourth round by the Mets. I believe he signed for $20,000. So you're right that a lot of these guys weren't making money to begin with. Uh, and I do think the guys who who really want to go to pro ball, like there, there's really no reason for you not to. Obviously, there are some priority senior signs who are going to be drafted and paid more simply because a, a lot of teams want them. I think there are a couple in this year's class who are pretty good. Uh, that are going to get paid more than 20000 But yeah, I'm interested to see how many more, how many fewer uh, seniors wind up signing this year. It'll be interesting to see. It's it's hard to completely wrap my head around these things, but I do think if you're talking about seniors who are on teams that have legitimate College World Series aspirations, I think that makes it a little easier for them to head back and know that they've got another year and they can simply run this process back next year. And if you think that you're already not getting a lot of money, if, if you're if you like the situation that you're at with your college team, uh, maybe you want to pursue a uh, another degree or something like that. I don't think you're going to be harmed too much. Although every team does factor in age uh, in their draft models at this point, so that's that's definitely a factor you're going to have to worry about. I'm I'm thinking to myself, and you brought up the scouts and how this affects their work. I wonder how organizations are going to adjust in that department. Are they going to assign these scouts to specific venues? Like wh- I wonder what their approach is going to be. Can you, can you kind of enlighten us and what you think the ripple effect may be related to the scouting departments in, in terms of shortening the draft? Yes. Yeah. I've talked to a couple of scouts about this. Actually, it's something that they bring up and they're obviously uh, in tune with, 
I think this this whole process could have more ramifications with pro scouts than with amateur scouts, and that might be a little weird uh, just right off the bat intuitively. But but I think it's hard. It's very hard to replace a lot of what the amateur scouts do. Uh, teams are replacing scouts at the pro level because the data at the minor league level is is very good. The video there is very good. You can remove scouts and do a lot of that work through video scouting or through your analytics teams. At the amateur level, the difference in the worst high school player in your area that you're scouting compared to the best, that gap is significantly larger than the worst minor league player in professional baseball compared to the best minor league player. That The gap in talent is just massive. So, so there's a lot of value in having those scouts there. There's also a lot of value in, in the in-home and the makeup uh, work that goes into uh, players in the off season. A lot of people kind of on the outside looking in might think that's a bit overstated, but I think every team to some level believes that it's valuable. Some teams obviously think it's more valuable than others, but when you're dealing with players with that significant talent gap and, and you're projecting on guys, uh, I think you need to have some confidence in them as a person as well as who they are as a player. So I think the amateur scouts will be fine. 20 rounds would still be more than enough for them to do their work, basically the same as they always have. Um, but if you do end up with the minor leagues contracting, some of these short season leagues going away, I think that's just fewer affiliates that your pro scouts will will have to cover. So you can maybe, I'll, obviously I, don't, I wouldn't want this to happen, but I think it'd be a lot easier for teams to maybe say, okay, well, you, there are this, these many fewer teams in the minor league system right now, we don't need all of these scouts because we can just consolidate everything a little bit. Um, that combined with sort of the data solutions that you have at the minor league level, I'd be a little bit more worried about what teams will do for pro scouts, but we'll see, I guess. Carlos, what do you think's worse? Like just about this agreement in general, is it the deferred payments for the guys or is it the 20 K max on undrafted players? And obviously that would be a little bit different. I think with a 10 round draft, as opposed to five. Yeah, I think what's the biggest disappointment for me, and we, we did a podcast at Baseball America kind of where I talked about this a little bit, but it just seems like over and over again, the Players Association is just letting Major League Baseball put more and more caps on different areas of spending in baseball. And I understand that the Players Association, they're not, res, they're not responsible for and they're not representing amateur players or even minor league players. But I think when you consistently let MLB cap spending in all these areas, it has a trickle effect. And these are the players who are going to be the future stars of your game. So, for instance, we used to not have any bonus caps. Now there's a pool that you can't go over uh, without tapping into a few penalties, and no teams have been willing to do that. Um, international signing bonuses have been capped. Uh, now teams who previously wanted to get aggressive on day three of the draft and spend more money, uh, they could do that. I think the Dodgers and the Braves spent upwards of $2 million on day three. Uh, and, and other teams like the Athletics spent around 300000 600000 something like that. So teams that wanted to spend money could. Now you, you really can't do that. Obviously, I guess you could sign more players. Uh, but with the 20 k cap, there's just less flexibility for teams to spend on talent if they want to. Um, and I think that's just a little disappointing. Um, the deferments, they don't really bother me too much. I mean, there is a financial incentive for owners to want to spend less. You can gripe about the fact that they're a billion dollar business. And I think you'd be fine to do so, but the money would still go to the players in that situation. The deferments don't bother me as much as we're operating in a system where it's harder and harder to spend 
on amateur talent and they're already the cheapest place to get to get really good players in general. Yeah, absolutely. And so the White Sox are one of the teams like over the last couple years where I mean they've spent right up until like over that 5% where they could. Last year they took um seniors in rounds 5 through 10. They paid them 10k each cuz they went over early. But I mean in the last two years they signed a Bryce Bush in round 33 two years ago. They signed DJ Gladney for 225,000 last year. So I feel like those are the types of things and the types of guys where they're almost going to be forced to either go play a year at JUCO or they're going to have to, you know, fulfill their college commitment and go wherever they were going to go, even though they really don't want to, I don't think. Yeah, definitely. There are going to be some of those guys who are squeezed out this year. I'm hopeful that that those guys next year, like when if, if we get to a 20 round draft, there will be more opportunities for those sorts of guys. I also think, too, when you're operating in a 20 round draft, I think basically right now a lot of teams, I would say probably most teams, in the six to 10 round range, they're not taking players because they think they're talented. Well, that might be a bit strong. They're not taking pl- the players they think are the most talented on the board. I think that's probably the safest way to, to put it. So if you kind of move, if you just move around how teams are able to operate, I think you'd still get those talented players that teams like. You're just playing less financial games, which I personally think would be just more fun for for viewers of the draft, people who necessarily don't, don't know all these players. Uh, it'd be more similar to an NFL or NBA style draft where, basically line up the talent and go. I can't help also, but think about the high school players coming out, the seniors going into the draft Mm -hmm. this year and the prep players who expect to get signed immediately, right. Are going to get in these bonus pool slots and it's typical, but moving forward, if we're doing a 10 round draft this season, I wonder if those like fringe high school draft prospects will elect to go to school as opposed to becoming a professional because well, some teams are just going to have to, you know, go elsewhere in terms of finding value. I wonder what the results of the 10 round draft is this year for high school players choosing to go to college as opposed to choosing to become a professional, um, you know, as a result of this, because, you know, maybe some high school players are ready to be a pro now and they don't want to go to a four year university and they'll elect to go to maybe a junior college or something like that. Do you think that comes into play? Yeah, definitely. I think that the junior college route is a fantastic option for players who are in that situation who maybe uh, you see yourself at a certain level in terms of the bonus that you're looking for. And because of the shortened draft uh, and the fact that maybe you haven't been scouted as much as you otherwise were. I mean, some kids in this year's high school draft class, they didn't even get to play a single high school game. Um, So understandably, it'll be tougher for teams to kind of want to spend that much money on a kid when they haven't seen them since last fall. Um, so I do think the Juco route would be a fantastic option for a lot of kids who want to kind of hit the reset button, play a season next year, reestablish their stock and go pro for others. I think there are going to be a lot of, a lot of players who just decide to go to the, uh, the four year route. I mean, there are going to be high school players in that second and third tier, like you mentioned, uh, who are going to get squeezed out because of this, because those players generally are more expensive. They have a lot more leverage. Um, and teams are going to be wary of spending that much money on players when they just simply have less information than they might um, from a college kid who played more games this season and already has a college resume built up. There's some high school prospect now that I'd like to focus on specifically. He's a local kid, Ed Howard. Mm -hmm. I want to get your opinion on him. Uh, Give me your scouting report on Howard where he ranks in this draft, where would you maybe slot him if he's a realistic option for the White Sox at 11 this year? Yeah, I think that it's funny that you mentioned that. We're actually getting a, 
we're getting our reports ready to go for the website. And I just finished writing up Ed Howard a few minutes ago, right before we hopped on this podcast. So great timing. It's it's tough because I think if he had a chance to play the full season, any games, I don't think he got any games this spring. He's one of those kids that, that didn't get into any high school action. If he had a chance to play, I think he could have played himself into this sort of range. Now I would say he's probably a little lower on the board than where the White Sox are picking. So it might be a bit of a stretch, but at the same time, Howard is the best shortstop in this this class. It's not a great year for shortstops, particularly on the high school side. Uh, and you do have to dream a little bit, project a little bit on his offensive side of the game, but he's a lot to play shortstop, really athletic, fluid, smooth, instinctual defender. He's got a very accurate, consistent arm, can throw from all, all sorts of angles, he has an impressive internal clock, and he's flashed what you want to see on the offensive side. He has good bat speed, good hands, bat-to-ball skills. I think it's just more of scouts want to see him kind of refine his approach, throw into his frame a little bit, add some more impact ability. But last summer, he did show signs of kind of progressing as the summer went on, which I think is a good sign. Um, so he has a lot to like, and, and typically the top high school shortstop in the class goes in the first round. So it wouldn't be crazy for the White Sox to take him. Um, But I do think you're dealing with a little more uncertainty than you otherwise would in a normal year. Yeah, and I mean, the White Sox are obviously, they're very familiar with Ed Howard. Ed Howard does have the same advisor. His advisor is uh, the agent that represents Tim Anderson. And they're just very familiar with him. But I wanted to touch on something that you mentioned in your latest piece. The Sox have had a lot of success with their Amateur City Elite program. And Ed Howard is like one of the, guys that was in that program. He was a star for it. Major League Baseball claims to care about things like play ball in the breakthrough series, like you mentioned, but you know, you know, to get like a more diverse group of kids playing the game, this new agreement seems to run contrary to that though. So what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, this is kind of gets back to what I was talking about earlier. Just, I think it's disappointing when you're just finding new, new ways to cap incoming talent, because I think, well, I don't know if this necessarily applies to Ed Howard specifically, there are definitely players who have the ability to play multiple sports at a high level. And if there are other avenues that offer a greater financial incentive, whether that's with scholarships, which baseball definitely doesn't compete with with football in terms of scholarships at the next level, um, or that's just not capping what you're getting if you want to go into pro ball. Obviously, the other two big sports, football and basketball, you, you don't really jump from high school to the pros. Um, but I just think that it's a lot. It's very easy for me to see a player saying, oh, I, I can't afford to go to school on a partial scholarship, but if I go play football at this school, I can do that. And, and I think it makes sense. Like, why wouldn't you do that as a player? So it would be nice if at the college level there were more scholarships for teams to work with um, and players who have a chance to play both if there was an incentive for them to play baseball. I think it'd be good for our sport. Um, there's no question that a lot of talented athletes are – are not playing baseball and, and playing other sports because of these reasons. Uh, obviously, it could be that they just prefer the other sports. Um, but I think it we should make our sport as easily accessible as possible. Um, obviously, this year is – I don't want to criticize MLB too much because this is just a crazy scenario that no one kind of expected. And I understand that with no revenues, owners don't want to spend as much in the draft. That makes sense. Um, but I think long-term – trying to get as many talented athletes into our game as possible is, is going to do nothing but good things for our game. So we were talking a lot about Ed Howard and a lot of good stuff that you just provided for us. I'm, 
I'm so I'm thinking about where the White Sox may go at 11, and I'm buying into the idea of Ed Howard coming to Chicago and being the local kid. I love the story, and I think the Sox are in a position too. When you look, you know, from the organization's perspective, they can afford to go in on a prep player. Maybe if they decide to reach on this player at 11, if he's considered to reach at that spot, yeah, I think I'd be okay with that. Uh, but moving on, if it's not Ed Howard, give me a few names that you think the White Sox could go out and grab mm-hmm. at 11th in this draft. Yeah, so for the White Sox, I mean, last four years they've gone college hitter, and I think last seven years it's been a four-year player in general. So I would bet on them just kind of continuing that. That seems to be their MO. They've had some pretty good success with some of those players. So players in that vein who make sense for me, another guy who could fit is Heston Kierstad in Arkansas. He's a guy who, outside of that top tier of Spencer Torkelson, Austin Martin, Nick Gonzalez, is probably the best combination of hit and power in the class. He's also a guy who, unlike uh, Ed Howard, I think is is one of the players least affected by the shortened season. He has a tremendous track record of hitting at a high level in the SEC and with USA Baseball with Woodbat. He led the team in most offensive categories last summer, uh, and he was off to another strong year this season. So I think that would make a lot of sense just – in terms of like typical profiles you see with the White Sox. Additionally, there are a lot of impact arms I think they would like. A guy like Max Meyer, if he was there, I think he'd be a phenomenal pick. At 11, I think there's a chance he could go before that, but he's got two plus pitches, two double plus pitches, excuse me, fastball that gets up to 97, 98, and one of the better amateur sliders that scouts have seen in, in many years. So he would be an interesting one as well. Yeah, so new scouting director Mike Shirley has indicated a little bit that they, they were going to be more prep focused. And I mean, last year they obviously took Andrew Vaughn and then they, they you know, they took three preps after that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you're not necessarily going to go into the first round of a draft saying we're taking a prep player no matter what. Exactly. But I but I do think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Like we've heard rumblings. They really like Jared Kelly, too, but mm-hmm. that guy might not make it to them um, just in general the White Sox still have a larger scouting staff than some teams. Do you think a scenario like this could benefit them since they've theoretically had more boots on the ground? Uh, maybe, but guy, when you're talking about guys like Mick Abel, who's in that range, we have him right after Jared Kelly, who you mentioned. Like, it doesn't matter how many scouts you had, he didn't throw this year. So I don't know that that helps you too much unless the White Sox are just way more prepared than most teams over the summer. Um so the teams who did their homework and the teams who have area scouts kind of focus on underclassmen, those are going to be the teams who who maybe benefit from from the high school kids who you didn't get to see as much this spring. The teams in the area scouts who have better history of some of these guys are going to be in a good position to maybe do some damage. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to see who, who uh, does that the best kind of when we get a chance to look back on this year's class. Carlos, really good stuff. A couple more. Don't want to take up too much of your time. You do really good work. I appreciate um, that. Thanks. Yeah. You, the last time we had a conversation prior to the draft last year, mm-hmm. a lot of the focus was, okay, where are the White Sox going to go at number three overall? They pick mm-hmm. Andrew Vaughn. I think we're all in love with the player. <laughs> uh, and, of course, I'd love to get your take on where Vaughn is now. But then there was a uh, – we talked high school shortstop earlier, Ned Howard. There was a high school shortstop that was rumored potentially to go to the White Sox and C.J. Abrams. What would you say now, looking back, of course, hindsight, is the result of the Andrew Vaughn pick and where would the White Sox potentially be if they had gone with C.J. Abrams? What would they have gotten in that high school shortstop? Well, I, I don't I don't think it's – it's. I think it's way too soon to, to say, oh, we missed out on someone because I think Andrew Vaughn is still a, very much a, an excellent player. C.J. Abrams obviously is as well. They were both in the same tier 
of player last year at this time. Um, I have kind of taken the stance. I think I'm more conservative than, than probably everyone at BA right now in terms of uh, not getting too caught up in CJ Abrams' debut. It was obviously very impressive. I don't want to take anything away from him, uh, but it was just a very small sample. Um, so there's still a lot of a lot of baseball to be played for both these players. But in terms of of what you have in a guy like CJ Abrams, I mean he's a dynamic elite runner, uh, one of the better runners in last year's class. Uh, a chance to be an impact center fielder if he doesn't make it at shortstop. Uh, I talked to a lot of guys who thought he was more than likely going to move to center field, uh, where he could be a plus plus defender there. He's got elite hands at the plate, uh, rarely swings and misses, excellent bat-to-ball and hand-eye coordination. Uh, he should always have an inflated batting average just because of that left-handedness and because of the speed he brings. Um, and a chance to grow into some power. I don't think it's ever going to be power than Andrew Vaughn already has, um, but he's got a chance to fill out a little bit, uh, hit a few over the fence and be a gap-to-gap kind of extra base doubles and triples guy who can offer excellent defensive value at, at premium positions. If he, if he sticks at shortstop, even better. But I think center field as a plus-plus defender, uh, no one's going to be complaining about that. So what do the White Sox have in Andrew Vaughn then? Yeah, Andrew Vaughn, I think you just have a lot more you have a lot more security in the bat with him. Um, he's a guy who was one of the better college hitters. I mean, there are probably maybe one guy who was a better hitter than him last year. Maybe two if you throw J.J. Blade in, I guess. But just the baseline for his offensive performance, I think, is significantly higher than with a guy like Abrams. Um, he's going to hit for power. He's got a chance to be a middle-of-the-order hitter um, that's going to drive in runs, hit for an average, um, and just be a reliable bat. Obviously, you don't have the defensive value in a guy like that compared to Abrams. Uh, he's going to be first base only or, or DH, I would imagine. He's a fine first baseman. There's no reason to run him off to DH unless you have another first baseman on the team at the time who's significantly better. Um, but I just think you can have a lot more confidence in what he's going to be able to do as far as becoming a middle-of-the-order type slugger. Yeah, and I think proximity to the majors helped the White Sox, too, in that. Just that, you know, like Andrew Vaughn could be here relatively quickly. Um, So just to bring you back to this year's, this upcoming draft for a second, you know, college guys typically rise in the process, obviously, like, you know, towards the end of the process. But, like, looking at it this year, um, it might have been like this anyway, but do you think now it's it's almost, you know, like it's going to be very college-heavy, at the top and how, and do you think, I guess, what are the odds that um, Detroit could go with the, the right, right first baseman in, in Torkelson at number one? Yeah. Th- that second point is going to be really fascinating. I'll touch on the first one uh, just because you asked in that order, but I, I do think it's going to be college heavy at the top. Um, I think entering the year, we kind of expected it to be college heavy at the top. So I don't know that it's a case of college players rising, just that the top of this class is very good with college players. We've talked about, um, actually, we haven't talked about these guys a ton, but you mentioned Spencer Torkelson. He's at the top of this class, as is Austin Martin. We have them one, two, with Martin being the number one. Uh, and then you've got Asa Lacey, the Texas A&M left-hander, and Emerson Hancock, the Georgia right-hander, as the top two arms in this class. And then the last guy in this kind of top five group of players is New Mexico State shortstop Nick Gonzalez. All those five were, were in the top five as we entered the year. Um, and I think everyone expects it to be fairly college heavy. Even after that, you've got guys like Garrett Mitchell at UCLA, uh, Louisville lefty at Reed Detmers. Uh, then we get into some of the high school players after that. So, so I do think it's again going to be pretty college heavy. And the second question, as far as Torkelson one one, it would be it would be awesome to see that just because we've never seen a college first baseman go one one. 
Uh, I think there are only a couple who have been that high on the high school level. I think Adrian Gonzalez is the only one. I'd have to check my notes on that to be sure. Um, but it's just a tough profile when you're looking at 1-1. One, one. Teams don't want to spend the first overall pick on that because I think generally you're, the idea is you want to get someone who can impact the game at a variety of different areas and, and different levels. Uh, if you have a pitcher, obviously that's one thing, but a guy like Austin Martin just has such a strong all-around profile. I think that's tough to pass up unless you think the bat of Torkelson, the hitting ability and the power just outweighs all the defensive stuff that, that Austin Martin could bring to the table. Um, whether or not Detroit thinks that, I'm not positive at this point. It's going to be tougher this year to kind of figure out what teams are thinking when we can't really scout the scouts at games. Um, so that'll be interesting. But right now I would probably lean towards Martin or one of those pitchers 1-1, but it wouldn't shock me, I would say, to see Torgelson go with the first overall pick. He's, he's a very special hitter. Carlos, I'm really interested in your opinion on some of the recent prep players that the White Sox took last year, and DJ Gladney, for example, and James Beard, and then the highlights of Matthew Thompson and Andrew Dahlquist. Throwing some names at you. Anybody that jumps off the page who I just mentioned, and if you can profile maybe James Beard specifically, because I'm kind of curious about how he can develop. Yeah, I was actually going to jump right into James Beard just because I remember watching him um, I guess the summer prior to the 2019 draft, I mean, he was one of the fastest players that I've seen. He was running, <laughs> he was running a 40 and he was running next to Jerry and Ely, who was also one of the fastest players in that class. He, he made it to college as a two sport guy. Um, but Beard is an 80 grade runner. So I'm sure you guys know, I mean, we had scouts saying last year that if Beard were to sign, he would immediately become the fastest player in professional baseball. Um, that's very lofty praise. And I think that I, I would want to obviously get some, get some numbers and see like, okay, who has the best uh, stat cast sprint speed ratings to, to really see if that bore itself out. Uh, but I don't think it's crazy. I think he's definitely in that top tier of the, the elite of the elite runners. Um, the spring of his draft year, he actually started to improve significantly as a hitter. Uh, he started tapping into his power more and he was filling out and adding some strength. Uh, curious to see, I haven't checked on his numbers lately. I'm sure you guys know. I'm curious to see how he held up in his debut season. I don't know how much he played. Um, but he did have a, a pretty raw offensive approach at the time when he was in high school. So I'd be kind of curious to see how quickly he was adjusting, uh, to pro level pitching, but he does have an exciting power speed combo. I think he can be an impact defender, uh, with continued refinement. I would just want to know what kind of what level of hit tool we were talking about after he got a, a couple of years of pro ball under his belt. Yeah. So he, I mean, he went out to the AZL and struggled, obviously. I mean, the, you know, the tools that you talked about, like were, were present. I mean, mm -hmm. he, you know, it's an 80 run for sure, you know, going to stay in center field. Um, but he, he struggled with even that level of pitching. So, yeah. you know, we had, we had kind of heard that he was going to be a two year rookie ball guy anyway. And now, say that. and now, now, and now for sure, I mean, you know, considering I don't even know if they're going to have the affiliate at Great Falls, like I don't I don't think they would put him there anyway. He's probably in the AZL, but it was, you know, so him and then Gladney, you know, was the 16th rounder who, you know, he hit like nine or 10 homers in the AZL, but he obviously had a lot of swing and miss in his game. Yeah. And then Andrew Dahlquist and Thompson, you know, we found out that they were, you know, they were going to report to Loe Canapolis to start the year. And they, they only threw, like, I think an inning 
mm-hmm. you know, last year. So I guess, you know, we're right there with you. Just we're interested in these guys because the White Sox deviated a little bit last year, finally, where they went with more yeah. prep players, but they really didn't, you know, those three specifically really didn't play a ton. Yeah. And I don't think you, it's typical. You don't see a lot of these high school guys, especially the pitchers teams are, are really cautious with them their first year, especially if they've thrown a full spring season. Um, but Thompson, I mean, he was a guy I got to see a lot. He was, he was famous as an underclassman. He's a guy who kind of established himself on the national scene at a very young age, power fastball up to 96, uh, in high school. He had a sharp slider as well. I think he could have been a first round, uh, pick if he performed well, he slipped a little bit. Cause I think there are some concerns with his, his strike throwing ability, just the erratic nature that he tended to throw with. So if you can refine that a little bit. Uh, get him some strength increases, endurance, and uh, his stamina. Uh, get him used to that pro schedule. I think that could be a really, a really good value pick for the White Sox in hindsight if he kind of develops as, as you'd want him to. I think the talent probably fit a little higher than forty-five, uh, just going into his the spring year before the draft. Uh, Dahlquist was a little bit more polished at the time. Good command guy, solid three pitch mix, good starter traits, athletic. Um, seemed to fit well in that range. That is the voice of Baseball America's Carlos Colazzo. Thanks so much for jumping on the Future Sox podcast, man. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. We'll uh, we'll let you go. Last one for you. Um, I know you're busy. We have the draft and all this news and coronavirus and this and that. But, you know, what do you do on your downtime? How are you unwinding <laughs> at home? What is it that keeps you busy outside of the draft? Uh, fortunately, my girlfriend who's in med school has been quarantined with me. She was on spring break when all this happened, so she's just been studying. So we're hanging out, and uh, re- I'm re-watching Ozark. She's never seen it. Oh, it's um, great. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. I- I'm excited to get to season three, but we've been going slower than uh, than I would like. So we need to get her up to season three so I can see it for the first time. That and uh, playing Call of Duty with the friends. This new one is oh, pretty go. good. <laughs> good stuff, Carlos. Really yes, appreciate it again, man. Don't yeah. be a stranger. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. This is fun. Thanks, Carlos. Yep, take care. For Carlos Colazzo of Baseball America and James Fox of Future Sox, my name is Mike Rankin, also of Future Sox. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, you know what? Go to futuresox.com and check out all of our content. We really appreciate you listening and reading. As always, we will talk to you all next time.